future Hall of Fame pitcher Don Sutton from the Los Angeles Dodgers walked onto the bus. I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the feeling one of baseball's best had just walked onto a bus, tapped me on the shoulder, and taught me how to pitch? Hey everyone, it's Gene Girdley here. Welcome to the Miles and the Markers podcast. This podcast is based on my book of the same name with the subheading, 52 Weeks of Experiences to Improve Your Life and Enhance Your Journey. For those of you who do not know me, I'm a husband, a father, a grandfather, and a business owner. The journey told in the book has taken me from the gas station to the pulpit, from the classroom to the dealership, from the corporate world, to a life on the road as a sales and service trainer in the automotive industry. I've seen success and failure. I've had abundance and at times very little. And the stories in the book are those of faith, perseverance, love, hope, and inspiration. And I am so happy that you have joined with me today. Welcome to this episode. Now, in our last episode, which was the inaugural episode, I went through the introduction and I explained that during the course of my reading of the stories, the miles and the markers within the book, and by the way, for those of you who don't know or who happened to miss the last episode and you're not familiar at all with my book, the miles are the chapters in the book. The markers are the lessons learned from the book. And at the end of the introduction, I set the table for my life and the background and the history. And the title of that section is called Baseball Runs in the Family. So I'll just begin with that. Dad wanted me to play baseball. The onset of childhood diabetes at age eight resulted in his early death at just 53 years old. And it also limited his ability to play most competitive sports. He may have therefore played baseball vicariously through me. And while it was at times very tough, I felt pride and joy from the relationship that he and I enjoyed because of baseball. Uncle Bill almost made it to the big leagues as a member of the original LA Angels in the early 1960s. After dad passed away, I went rummaging through a box of his keepsakes and I came across an old LA Times sports page. There in black and white was a photo of my uncle Billy Girdley sliding into home plate. How cool is that? Now from the very young age of seven, Baseball was pretty significant to me. There was Little League and Senior Babe Ruth Baseball League, high school, college, and semi-pro baseball. I was selected for all-star teams and twice voted all-conference as both a second baseman and a pitcher in the same years. I was honored to be part of the 1976 Washington State all-senior team, and I would eventually pitch against other top players in Seattle's Sick Stadium. That was the home of the original Seattle Pilots Major League Baseball team. What a thrill that was. Now, there were beautiful memories, some I'd like to forget. Each experience contributed to my personal and professional growth. 
it's a blessing to have played the great game of baseball for so many years. So baseball was very important to me, as you can tell uh, from that introduction. And now I'm going to get into a little story that I subtitled Pee Wee Reese, I Wasn't. And there's a little tongue-in-cheek there with the Pee Wee stuff. <laughs> it was a warm, sunny summer afternoon in Norwalk, California, 1967. Uh, there stood a toe-headed nine-year-old boy in a baggy uniform playing second base. Of course, that was me. It was the bottom of the third inning, and I desperately needed to pee. <laughs> now, nobody cares if a kid heads off to a porta potty to, quote, take a leak between innings these days. But in 1967, fathers had high expectations for the sons they were grooming to become major league stars. Sure, I was only nine, but this was serious stuff for my dad. He also happened to be my coach. Had he known that I had to pee during the game, a tongue lashing would follow later. Quote, you should have gone before the game, he would have said. Worse yet, he definitely would have pulled me out and sat my little behind on the bench. And this kid was not about to say a word. Instead, I held it in and did, quote, the dance of the ants for the next two innings. By the fifth inning, the pressure and the burning were just too much. My options were to leave the field and face the wrath of dad, or simply cut loose and hope nobody noticed. I chose the latter, and I peed myself right there at second base in front of everyone. The sizable wet stain that immediately appeared was likely visible by residents at the apartment building next to the ballpark. What an embarrassment. Aside from the physical relief and the warm liquid covering my legs in uniform, I really don't remember what I thought. I must have mentally checked out. What I do remember is dad calling time out and escorting me from the field to the dugout. As I sat quietly alone on the bench, my dad came over and put his arm around me. Are you okay? He asked. And I cried. Now, to his credit, Dad didn't yell at me or criticize me. My bladder may have gotten the best of me that day, but it didn't hurt my relationship with my dad or hinder my future in baseball. And by the way, Pee Wee Reese played shortstop for the Brooklyn and the Los Angeles Dodgers from 1940 to 1958. That latter year happened to be the year that I was born. The next event in baseball... Um, was a little more significant. And I titled that subsection, Tapped by a Hall of Famer. A few years later, my mom, who happened to be a country western singer, asked me to go with her to a performance at Tehachapi State Prison in Central California. Sharon Layton and the Country Sunshine were headlining a special event for the inmates, and I was invited to attend. The trip included a four-hour bus ride each way, and there was no reason at all to get excited. After all, it was Saturday, with a full morning of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck lined up for my viewing pleasure. But somehow, Mom persuaded me that not going would result in untold regret. So off we went. 
few hours later, we found ourselves in the front seat of a Greyhound bus ready to hit the road. I was bored out of my mind. Now, before I continue with the book, I just need to give you a little backstory here. With mom being a country entertainer, uh, I was around events where she performed a lot. Uh, we would go to Knott's Berry Farm because she was performing at the wagon camp all day long. And so I'd run around Knott's Berry Farm and, and play and do the rides and, you know, go crazy and sometimes bring a friend, sometimes not. But basically it was like, look, I've heard it all before. I've seen it all before. I, I really don't want to hang out with your band, mom. So with that setup, having been around that a lot already as a young boy, I didn't want to go to some prison and listen to her band again. I was like, no way, I ain't going. <laughs> so fortunately, she talked me into it uh, because what I'm about to tell you and, and the story that I'm about to share with you is pretty significant and would have been significant to anybody, especially somebody who ended up playing baseball. So as I said before, there I was bored out of my mind. And just before we pulled away from the bus station, future Hall of Fame pitcher Don Sutton from the Los Angeles Dodgers walked onto the bus. Sutton did motivational speaking and would later become an outstanding broadcaster for the Atlanta Braves. And by the way, he passed just a few years ago. Um, I remember when he did pass away that I looked up his Hall of Fame speech and uh, really enjoyed reflecting on some of our conversations that I'm about to share with you. Uh, no one was a bigger Dodger fan than me. Each night during the season, in fact, I would fall asleep with an AM radio tucked under my pillow, listening through cheap headphones to the immortal Vin Scully, uh, calling every moment of every game. I can still hear him say, McGraw is at the belt and here's the pitch. It's a long fly ball. I'm not doing I'm not doing him justice here. It's a long fly ball to left field. Back goes Jones. Way back, she's gone. A home run for Parker. Um, the interesting thing about that sleeping um, with the AM radio on is we had a nanny at the time who I shared a room with, uh, much to my displeasure, because my mom and stepdad performed like an, until three in the morning. So. I was at home and we had a nanny who took care of us and uh, she would hear that radio on and she would let me have it, turn that radio off. <laughs> and so I would try to just barely turn it on enough to be able to sleep uh, with it on or fall asleep with it on while I was listening to the Dodger games. So before the bus station left, uh, I felt a tap on my shoulder. Don asked me if I'd like to sit with him for the trip to Tehachapi. Uh, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> now Don showed me how and why to throw a curveball the way he did. I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the feeling one of baseball's best had just walked onto a bus, tapped me on the shoulder and taught me how to pitch? <laughs> I almost peed myself again. So an interesting side note regarding how Don taught me to pitch and why he threw the curveball the way that he did. Uh, a lot of pitchers today, you'll see what's called a curveball, and it will move from for a right-hand pitcher from right to left and drop a little bit. 
Um, Don's curveball was what they called 12 to 6. I mean, it went straight down. And that's how he taught me to throw it. And he explained that if you look at a bat and the way a hitter swings that bat, as it crosses the plate, the hitting surface of the bat covers an area horizontally from, well, three to nine on a clock, right? And so when I said 12 to six, I'm talking about on a clock, right? From the top 12 o'clock to the bottom six o'clock. And a bat covers the plate horizontally from three to nine o'clock. So if a curveball goes from three to nine o'clock, then a hitter still has more opportunity as that ball moves to hit that ball because it's moving the same direction as the length of the bat. But if it drops, the bat is only a couple inches tall. And so it's harder to hit a curveball that drops than one that moves side to side. So that's the logic behind that. So it was my senior year in high school now, as we think ahead and we move forward in the story with the subtitle, A Future Champion and a Personal Meltdown. As I said, it was my senior year in high school, April of 1976. I was a late bloomer physically. In fact, at 17 years old, I was only five foot 10 and I weighed an unimpressive 155 pounds. I was a right-handed pitcher with an okay fastball and that fantastic curveball that I'd learned on the bus ride several years earlier. On an overcast afternoon in the Pacific Northwest, this skinny, brown-haired teenager was about to pitch against a guy who would later become a major league star and win a World Series with the L.A. Dodgers in 1981. His name was Tom Niedenfuhrer, and at the time, he was about six foot four and 200 pounds. His fastball reached 90 miles per hour in high school. Big Tom was good. Now, the bleachers at Redmond High School were overflowing with spectators that day. The local press, several college coaches, and a few professional scouts came to watch the matchup. Well, they came to watch Tom. <laughs> I was just fortunate enough to be his opponent. And the first three innings went well, as my opponents got just one hit. We were tied 0-0 after three, and then the fourth inning came. Our second baseman made two errors, and Tom's team scored three runs. We went on to lose the game three to nothing as Tom tossed a no-hitter at us. Now, how we lost is what upset me the most, and I made it known. At 17 years old, I acted like a little kid who wet himself eight years earlier. After the game, everyone heard me stomp my feet. They watched as I threw my glove, and our team felt my anger boiling during the entire bus ride home. For anyone familiar with baseball, the name Carlos Zambrano is sure to ring a bell. In June of 2010, Zambrano was pitching for the Chicago Cubs, and he felt that his teammate Derek Lee should have made more of an effort to stop a line drive that turned into a double and began a four-run first-inning rally for the White Sox. When the inning ended, Carlos went after Lee to such an extent that the Cubs suspended him indefinitely. And while my tantrum back in 1976 wasn't nearly as bad as Zambrano's, my actions and my attitude and the way it affected our team, my coach and our fans, and the scouts sitting in the stands was clear. Gene Girdley needed to grow up. Lesson learned. The next day, one of my coaches saw me 
about to get into my green Ford F-150 pickup truck. And he called my name. Hey, Gene, he said with a big smile on his face. Yeah, coach, I replied and turned to face him. Suddenly, I felt two powerful hands gripping the collar of my windbreaker as my heels were lifted slightly off the ground and my back pressed against the front fender of my pickup. My coach's face had turned bright red as his smile transformed into clenched teeth. His pursed lips made it clear he was none too happy. If you ever disrespect me, your teammates, or this school again, he growled, I don't care if you're the best pitcher on the planet. You'll never play for this team or me again. Then he let go of my collar, smiled, turned away, and said, see you tomorrow at practice. Now let's be clear, shall we? I was not hurt, not physically, mentally, or emotionally. It was the coach's way of getting my attention and showing me that he cared, and it worked. To this day, I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for my coach. He retired as one of the most beloved coaches in school history. He's a kind, gentle soul who gives his time tirelessly to the local community. In 1976, he did what was needed. He metaphorically gave me a good swift kick in my immature pants. I grew up a lot that day. I never again reacted negatively to a teammate, regardless of how they played. We were in this together, and we all needed each other, win or lose. Thanks, Coach. Professional sports organizations like the NFL now regulate the amount of practice time and physical contact drills in which players can participate. If a coach breaks the rules, the league finds him or her, and the team forfeits practice time. Individual athletes often employ personal coaches for physical training, goal setting, and psychological mind training. They've adapted. We should change too. Final reflection. During one of those incredible Saturday Night Live skits from the 70s, Garrett Morris would say, Baseball been very, very good to me. It has been to me as well. Whether it's parenting, coaching, or selling, Organizations, employees, and customers want and need leaders who can provide a consultative and cooperative approach. People long to be treated with dignity and respect. Former President and General Dwight D. Eisenhower said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. Choose today to adapt and improve your leadership strategies, your team members and your customers, and maybe even your kids will love you for it. Mile one, being there. My career in the car business began as a grease monkey at a Chevron gas station in Bellevue, Washington. It was the fall of 1976 and Dave Swap taught me how to do what Marissa Tomei explained to the prosecuting attorney in My Cousin Vinny, quote, tune-ups, oil changes, brake relining, Engine rebuilds, rebuilds from trannies, rear ends. Dave was a great shop owner. Besides fixing cars, he taught me how to multitask, treat customers with respect, and upsell to apparent needs on the service drive. In those days, gas stations were full service. Customers would drive over the air hose and the bell would ring. And before the ring ceased, Dave would leap into action. 
From under the hood of a 1972 Impala, he would rise, gently set down his half-smoked camel cigarette, dip out Goop's blob, and rub it into his hands. Out of his pocket came the red shop rag to clean off the grease, and back went the dirty rag into his pocket. Just as he bent over to ask the once simple, classic gas station attendant question of, fill her up? Now, if you've worked in the service industry, you're familiar with the term feast or famine. It means that you're either getting too much or not enough. And when it came to customers driving over that air hose, it was always feast or famine. When we had no work in the shop, we'd have virtually no customers wanting gasoline either. But as soon as we found ourselves under the hood for a tune-up or pulling a wheel to grease the bearings, gas guzzlers would flow in at a constant pace as if they purposely tried to make our day miserable. Pop the hood, ding. Set the hoist up to raise the car, ding. And on it went. After taking the customer's gas order and beginning to pump the petrol, Dave would ask the customer to pop the hood, turn the steering wheel, and turn on the lights. Every customer got their oil checked and the dipstick shown to them. Their fluids were checked and explained, hoses squeezed, belts twisted, tires pressured, tread depth measured, and a quick walk around the vehicle to inspect for burnt out light bulbs. After the inspection, an offer to repair or replace anything they needed was made. When the bays were full, we'd do service and repairs the old-fashioned way with a floor jack and an oil drain pan. Will that be cash or credit? Dave resisted charging more for credit card purchases until the card companies raised the processing fees beyond what was reasonable. Dave was indeed a customer-focused shop owner. He cared about customers, and he showed me what it meant to, quote, be there for those customers long before the practice was memorialized in the book co-authored by John Christensen called Fish. Dave believed in making a fair profit in exchange for excellent service. He treated me well and allowed me to learn an essential and valuable part of the car business. Because he didn't have children at the time, Dave treated me like a son. He wanted me to be the guy who could help him build the business beyond a single gas station. When money began to disappear from the cash drawer, mysteriously, he was horrified to think it could be me who was taking it. There was only one other potential perpetrator, and he was relatively new. Mile marker. Be there for your customers and others. Prioritize and focus on the most important things for those you're serving. And that will do it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, as I said before, the book is organized in 52 weeks of experiences to improve your life and enhance your journey. The book's available on Amazon. But if you are going to go and look for it, don't type in the miles and the markers because there's so many things that will come up. Just type in my name, Gene Girdley, G-E-N-E-G-I-R-D-L-E-Y, and you will find the book available in paperback or on Kindle. And right now, we're kind of developing the audio version of it. I'll probably do that separate though. But I appreciate you all for joining me this week. Hope you have a great week and God bless.